it really is a privilege to be here, and I'd just like to start by expressing how much of a blessing it is to have such talented musicians to lead us in worship. That was fantastic, and thank all of you for that. I'm kind of an odd human being, so whenever I'm getting ready to speak up here, which is a little bit nerve-wracking to me, I try to think of words to describe what I'm feeling, and I think the words that come to me are humble fear. I think that's the words that come to me, which is slightly different than just being scared. So scared, I would relate to my freshman year in football when I was about five, two and a half with my cleats on and weighed about 115 pounds, fully padded, soaked in molasses. <laughs> and I arrived to see a, some upperclassmen that I knew, one being a red-headed, corn-fed country fellow that looked like he might eat plated steel for breakfast named Laith, and a defensive back named Chris Cooper who would sacrifice life and limb to make you feel every ounce of his hit. So it's a little bit different. It's more weighty than just being scared. <laughs> um, our text today will be from the book of Ephesians. So I'd have you turn there, and it's the second chapter. We'll be in verses 1 to 10. We're going to camp out there, so you might just want to leave it open. And while you're turning, I just remind you that Ephesians is one of Paul's prison letters. It's written in the early 60s, and he's writing to believers, telling them of the richness of God's grace and salvation. And one commentator that I wrote said that Ephesians, perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, gives God's purpose for the church. It's a book that can certainly be read in one setting from start to finish, and it's kind of broken down by Paul for three chapters of theology and three chapters of practice. So I would commend that to you at some point. But let's read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's, let's pray. Father, I just confess my complete inadequacy to express wholly what was just read. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reign in this auditorium right now, Father, that we would hear this as if for the first time, Father, that we would be wowed by these words and humbled by these words, and that your Holy Spirit would have its effect, Father, for we know that your word does not return void, and I just pray that you would help me to the best of my ability express that which you've put on my heart. Guide and direct us, and thank you for all that you do for us, in Jesus' name, amen. 
I commute a lot. I drive a lot for work. And when you drive a lot, you notice signs and different things. And there was a sign, and I think there's still a sign there at the 7 Highway exit that's in an advertisement for Clinton, Missouri, which it's a sign for Clinton, Missouri. It's a little bit different than it used to be because it used to say Clinton, great people by nature, something that effect, great Clinton, good people by nature. I always kind of appreciated the the play on words that, that, that the sign represented because, it, you know, Clinton, the proximity to Truman Lake and the outdoors and nature and, and this and that. But the thing that always struck me was the good people or great people, the other part of the play on words is great people by nature. And I'm not picking on the sign. I thought it was a pretty clever sign. But it should cause us to pause just a little bit about what we mean by are we good by nature? Are we great people by nature? And that's kind of where we're going to look here uh, for the next moments. I would say that while that may not be a biblical, biblical concept, it's certainly not, we're going to see here in just a moment, it is right directly in line with what the world would have us to believe about ourselves. So that's an important thing because there are competing worldviews and philosophies. Again, we're going to talk about that more as we get into the text. But for me, there are three possibly central philosophies that guide our thoughts if we listen to what the world tells us. And one would be naturalism, which is the whole idea that God is no longer necessary because via the process of evolution, we've done away with this whole theory of God and we need not believe in God any longer. Another competing philosophy would be humanism, which is the idea that man is the end of all things. In other words, morality, truth, ethics, knowledge are all to be determined by man and that man is basically good. Thirdly, materialism, an unabashed self-centeredness, the whole dog-eat-dog mentality. Get out of my way, I'm going to have mine, and I don't really care about you. I would say these philosophies dominate our culture. I'm constantly trying to get my kiddos to understand the clash of worldviews that they are engaged in every single day, particularly in the public school system, secular colleges, or on the job site. There are competing worldviews. So the question of the day is, what does Scripture have to say about the idea of being good by nature? If you're a Christian, I hope that the idea of goodness is one that you've put some thought to. For where do we derive goodness? Where does it come from? As Christians, it is central to our faith that mankind has fallen, and as the word says, desperately wicked, and needing rescued from this plight. And what we're going to look at today is how God, in his great mercy, has dealt with this, these issues because we are dependent upon him, as we're going to learn. So let's turn our eyes back to the text, and we are going to kind of go verse by verse through Ephesians 2. Starting with the first two verses, as we read, Paul says that we're dead in the trespasses and sins in which, I'm going to say, we walked following the course of this world, kind of going back to the introduction of the philosophies that compete for our mind, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And I want you to note right off, right out of the gate, Paul is trying to draw a sharp contrast between death and life, between goodness and evil. So keep that kind of in the back of your mind. And interesting to me, right out of the gate, he uses the word dead. And I am pencil-headed enough 
to think, what does that word mean, dead? Are you serious? We're going to talk about what the word dead means? Doesn't dead mean dead? Yes, dead does mean dead. But I'm not certain we get the significance of being dead. The, the Greek word that is used is the word necros, which comes across completely into the English. In the healthcare field, I'm a nurse. On Friday, we had a kiddo come back that had the unfortunate event this past week of having a fairly large firework explode in his hand. So he was coming back after a couple days to take a look at his hand, and what the procedure was going through for this young man was a debridement, and a debridement means they are removing necrotic tissue. Does that word sound familiar? Necrosis, necrotic. It's dead. It has to be trimmed away. It has no chance of being alive again. It has to be trimmed away. The only thing that could be is to, be, is to get infected. So necros comes directly to us. And prior to God's work of grace, man is dead in his sin. And what do these spiritually dead folks do with their time? They walk following the course of this world. They not only walk in darkness, but you get the thrust of Paul's idea, they enjoy walking in the darkness. They can do no other thing. He also says dead in them. We must remember that we are dead because of the sinful nature that we are born with. We are not, and this is kind of a, a narrow delineation, but I think it's important. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. That is who we are. We are not neutral, and we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. The spiritually dead follow the course of this world. Fulfilling the lusts of their flesh. As one commentator, Walter Liefeld, points out in his commentary, existence prior to receiving eternal life is not, as might be supposed, a state of neutrality. It's not that we're born neutral, and it's kind of dependent on how we're raised, it's kind of dependent on the level of education we have, it's kind of dependent on this, it's kind of dependent on that. We are born sinners. In sin did my mother conceive me, David said in Psalm 51. If you have any doubt about that, watch about a two-year-old child. What is the favorite word that comes out of their mouth immediately at seeming at two? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Our culture is sold on the idea that if we can somehow educate the world out of evil, that's not the biblical portrait. Turn with me just briefly to 1 John 2. I'll buttress that a little bit with Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, and I'm sorry, I don't have the board. Um, I was talking about making a PowerPoint and, and other things with technology, and my wife said, Aaron, when you start dealing with technology, you turn into an axe murderer. <laughs> so uh, we're going to turn pages. 1 John 2, we'll start at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And listen to this. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Excellent thought coming from the apostle John. If you want to know what this looks like, you don't have to look far. Turn on a TV, a radio, sit in a secular classroom, take a peek at literally any social media feed. This is why there is such a burning in my heart 
for the younger generation of America. And in my opinion, the church, and I'm not going to talk about this church specifically, we're blessed in this church, but the church in America has not done a stellar job in exposing what the course of this world is and the consequences that it brings. Instead of thinking through these things and speaking up, we have often put our apathetic heads in the sand. The course of this world proclaimed the death of God and kicked the truth out of the school systems. The course of this world proclaims with thunderous voice the new religion of our culture. I am the captain of my own ship and I will determine what reality is. The course of this world promotes the religion of naturalistic evolution that tells our kids that they are nothing more than grown-up germs and whatever feels good is okay. The course of this world presses into our court system and says that it is okay to dismember an unborn child in the womb. The course of this world undermines the sanctity of marriage in many degrading forms, from pornography to abuse to adultery to so-called same-sex marriage. The course of this world is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Paul says, and the course of this world has caused our culture to become absolutely infatuated with itself. Both we and our children drink this stuff in by the gallon, perhaps not being unaware of it as we just kind of take in like sponges the things that are going on around us. We're constantly inundated by social media, 24-hour news cycle, and the godless entertainment industry selling this poison, and we have made an idol out of ourselves. R. Kent Hughes was a former pastor of the college church in Wheaton, Illinois. He made this statement. I think it's worthwhile. He said, someday if history is allowed to continue, a perceptive artist may sculpt a statue of 20th century man with his arms draped about his inflated self in loving embrace, kissing his mere image. This is the sin of old. The desire for autonomy, for self-rule. How did the serpent tempt Eve in the garden? Think back to Genesis all the way to chapter 3. What did he say? If you eat it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. No, we are certainly not neutral in our fallen state. We are absorbed with ourselves and in love with the world's system. And as such, we are enemies of God. As James tells us, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And I would say that our churches need to examine ourselves and make sure that we are not being blind to this sin. Paul is being very blunt with the Gentile converts, and it should seem blunt to us today. As verse 3 tells us, and, and kind of brace yourself for this, Paul says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Paul is letting us know that before we get our self-righteous hats on, that we are all guilty of such things prior to the gracious work of God in our lives. Kind of harkens back to Romans 3 where he sets this whole thing up and he says there's none righteous. No, not one. In my mind, this verse is a kind of an equalizer and it's meant to humble us as Christian people. The unconverted don't need our bony judgmental finger in their face all of the time. And I believe me, I'm not saying condone their sin. But where they are, we once were. Let that soak in. We've all heard the expression, but for the grace of God, there go I. That should be in our minds when we think about such things. The unrighteous will behave unrighteously 
because they can do no other. They are dead in their sins. There'll be more to say on this in verse 10. So, verses 1 to 3, a tad bit bleak, would you agree? As Paul so often does, he paints a bleak picture before he explodes into language that truly exalts the glory and grace of God. Look with me as Paul makes his transition. Verse 4 is a definite transition uh, statement by Paul. And I truly pray that we can prepare our hearts to feel the weight of what we're getting ready to read as if it was for the first time. I appreciated Brian last week saying his fear, do we, have we lost the wow factor? You're getting ready to, to hear the wow factor in verse 4. So by nature, we're dead in our transgressions and sins, but hear this refrain. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do for us? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Those two words together in verse 4, but God, if you're an underliner or a star person or a highlighter as I am when I'm reading, I would encourage you, those are worthy of highlights. But God, dwell on it for a moment and note the contrast. We were dead, but he made us alive. Like the world, we were following the passions of our flesh and the destruction that we so eagerly chase after, but God made us alive. Please understand, church, that he made us alive. Us who? Us, the redeemed, the audience, as believers in the, in the book of Ephesians. If you're a Christian, you owe your thanks to only one, and that is to God who made you alive by his grace, period. How the church needs to understand this point that we may give glory to the Savior of our souls. Love the songs that we sang this morning. We were dead. Can I submit to you this morning that the analogy of salvation rampant in the church today goes something like this. And I'm not saying there's not a morsel of truth to it, but I don't think it captures what Paul is saying. It's kind of the analogy of today is, well, we're kind of like a man in the ICU who's very sick. And the gospel is like a spoonful of medicine representing the cure. But the man must reach out and take the medicine to secure his healing. I just don't think that captures what Paul's trying to say here. We're dead. What can a dead man do about his condition? And I think of Lazarus in the Gospels. Dead and decomposing. And what does our Lord say to Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth. What hope did Lazarus have apart from those words? He had no hope. He was dead. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 tells us that the Christian life is by grace. The grace of God and salvation that makes the dead alive. And you may rightfully say, Aaron, are you saying that we don't make a response? Yes, we do. But we're going to see in verses 8 and 9 that even the response is owed to the grace of God. And what is God's purpose in doing this? It's a very important question in this passage. What is God's purpose in doing this? And let's look and see that God certainly does have a purpose. Starting at verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I urge you, spend some time thinking about that verse. That verse has been going through my mind for days and I still am not completely certain that I understand what it means. 
But listen to what it says. We're brought out of death, saved by God's grace, not only saved, but it says seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The first purpose focuses on us. By God's grace and salvation, we are said to be seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. John MacArthur commentating on this verse states that we are no longer of this present world or in its sphere of sinfulness and rebellion. We have been rescued from spiritual death and given spiritual life in order to be in Christ Jesus and to be with him in the heavenly places. And I am not a Greek scholar, but the Greek word seated in this passage is in a tense that gives the idea that it is already completed. We're already there. Nothing can come against it. We are there. God in his great mercy has taken us from dead and rotten and setting us up to live in eternity with Christ. And in a sense, it's already been completed. The enormity of that passage and what a comfort it should be to us We so often get bogged down by the cares of this world and you cannot believe the hypocrisy I felt writing that sentence. How often we get bogged down by the cares of this world. There is not a human being in this auditorium that gets bogged down by the cares of this world more than the person standing in front of you right now. I worry about this, I worry about that, I grumble about the other, I don't like my job, I don't like this, and we focus here. And as long as the enemy can get us focusing here, he robs us of the peace that we have here. We forget that eternal life is given at salvation. Do we ever think about that? Jesus prays in the garden and he says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The biblical writers would have us to see that this life is but a vapor. And our hope has been secured in Christ as we are seated with him. And nothing can come against that. Read Paul in Romans 8. He can't contain his pen. Neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It is done. How often do we think of it? And this transcends, and I'm not denying the fact of trials and tribulations. There are individuals in this church that have suffered in a way that I cannot even, I can't even grip. But there is a peace that Paul offers us in the scripture somehow. And again, I, 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 there's a whole branch. This is a side note and dangerous. <laughs> There's a whole branch of Christianity, if you want to call it that, that would say, if you're truly saved from the point of salvation, you should be healthy and wealthy and happy. I call it the genie in a bottle theology. Rub the bottle. God will come out. Ask him what you will. And that's not the point. Our salvation is secure in Him. Our inheritance is secure in Him. Our peace is secure in Him. 
not our momentary happiness, if you will. So important. And again, I, the Bible gives us such a great hope of knowing that our future is secure. Even in this passage saying that we're, it is, we are seated right now with Christ Jesus. It doesn't negate the fact that on this earth there will be suffering inexplicable. But our hope is secure like an anchor. The second purpose is to the praise of God's glory. That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches, certainly, yes. Our salvation, first and last, demonstrates the immeasurable riches of his grace. Here for the first time, again, the creator of this universe. I'm not really a hunter or fisher. I, I like to fish. I like to hunt. I try to kind of teach my, my kids, but my appreciation is for the creation. I love being out in it. If you step out and look at the stars, or if you've been to the Rocky Mountains, or if you are set on your porch and watch the sunrise, I want you to think about something. That the creator of this universe, and imagine the immense power that that takes to speak, and that just comes forth, baffles the mind. But I want you to know that the creator of this universe has been kind towards you if you are a Christian. What do we say to that? Think on it. If you need a cause to worship, think on that. I do not wake up every morning thinking, I can't wait to get out of this bed and worship. And that's a flaw. That's, that's part of this flesh that unfortunately we still carry around that dead weight with us as Christian people. But if you need a reason to worship, think on these things. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's a very familiar text. Many of you, I'm certain, have this memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Very familiar text. And Paul reiterates the fact that salvation is all of God. There's a lot of technical jargon in this verse that, again, kind of a pinhead like me would like to talk about. It, 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 the point of the fact is there, that the grace... And the faith are gifts of God. And apart from God, we would still be lost in our sin. That is the point. And I stated this earlier about a response. Do we respond in faith? If you haven't responded to God in faith in Jesus Christ, I would argue that you're not a Christian. I would, I would argue that you need to examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. Yes, we respond. But that response of faith here in verses 8 and 9, said it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. No room for boasting. This absolutely excludes boasting of any sort. And apart from the sovereign grace of God, we would all remain dead in our sins. Liefeld commenting again says, God is indeed sovereign in the matter of grace. It is inconceivable that salvation should in any way depend on the individual since it is part of God's overall plan. And he hearkens back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. And I encourage you to read it, starting at verse 1 and, and through this. And I think you'll see what he's talking about. Much more to be said in verses 8 and 9. Truly, realistically, this could be broken into several-part sermon. I'm, I'm certain of that. 
Verse 10 sets up the most appropriate conclusion to our passage. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? What does it say? Please answer. Prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. Why were we created in Christ Jesus, according to Paul? Why? Why were we created in Christ Jesus? What's it say there? Don't be ashamed to say it. It, it, That's what we're going to talk about a little bit. What does it say? Why were we created in Christ Jesus? Yes, for good works. If you follow Paul's thought, he has helped us to understand our situation all the way from being dead to being made alive by the grace of God. Verse 10 simply brings to a crescendo God's purpose. And that is that having experienced the grace of God in salvation, we make it our single objective to live for Him. This is why He saved us. This seems so simple, but is so sadly misunderstood in the church today. God has called us for a purpose. And why I say that's a dangerous thing to say is because I think sometimes people hear in the words, you're saved by those works. No, that's not what Paul says We are not saved by our works, but we are certainly saved unto good works. Very important distinction. The overarching purpose of the entire life of the believer should be to focus our attention on giving glory to God through joyful obedience to Him for what He has done. John Calvin, I have so many favorite quotes I always say this is one of my favorite quotes, and I think when I say that, my family just literally rolls their eyes because but it is one of truly my favorite quotes. And he, the 16th century reformer, he says this, It is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible in our midst. I love that. I pray that we would see that. It is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible in our midst. I can't go somewhere on a plane and see Jesus sitting on the throne physically. I can't see that. Is that true? Do I know that's reality? Yes, I do. But it's the task of the church to live in such a way that we're standing right before him, that our works, that our Joyful obedience because of what he has done for us reflects who he is to a fallen world. And again, get the contrast. We're dead following our own sinful passions. We're over here dead laying in our sinful passions, following after them, craving our sinful passions. Now that we have been made alive, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To walk as the new creations that we are by God's grace. We were once slaves to sin... And now we are free to walk in obedience to Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. That we would understand that. When you're a slave to sin, you can virtually do no other. When you are set free in Christ and called by His grace to be His, we are truly free at that point. We don't have to follow the ways of this world. Do we still carry the weight of our flesh? One day that will go away. But yes, while we're here, we do. But we don't have to obey it. Very important. 
I'm going to go through some uh, verses right quick uh, just to consider related to this. Titus 2, verse 11 to 14. I'm going to read it for you. You don't have to turn there. But Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that all people would mean every tribe, nation, and tongue. It doesn't mean universalism. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Does this all ring a bell? Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying it in different languages, and it so relates to the passage. Waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might do what? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's a purpose statement. 1 John 5.3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And I included that passage for that last sentence. His commandments are not burdensome. If you look at the message of the Old Testament prophets, it's almost always related to calling the people back to obedience to the covenant. That should be our same endeavor today. We are to reflect the glory of God in obedience. And this is not some type of laundry list that you make of do's and don'ts. I guess it can be. But you've got to watch your attitude in, in these things. It's not the laundry list of, oh, check that out. I did that. I didn't do that. Thank goodness I didn't do that. This is a life of blessing. As we fulfill the purpose God created beforehand for us to walk, we are not saved by works, but we are certainly saved unto them, as I said earlier. Church, we hear much today about revival. And God send a revival. That should be the prayer of our heart. But do you know what will bring revival? I don't think it's that big of a secret. I do agree that God moves in specific and certain ways and special ways at certain times. But I don't know that it's the big secret that we all think that it is. Revival will come when the church remembers its calling to be salt and light to a condemned world. That's when revival will come. We tend to get so angry at the world for being the world, don't we? Man, we love to do that. I love getting my self-righteous hat on. Isn't it? Man, can you believe what they're doing? Can you believe that? Look what, look what the news just said about this guy. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm not condoning. But we love to get angry at the world for being the world. And to me, I think maybe what we need to be a little bit more frustrated with is the church failing to be the church. To walk in obedience demonstrating the love and goodness of God to an unredeemed world, calling them to repentance and faith. I tried to summarize a few things, and a few takeaways from this passage, if you will. I made my list, and I looked at it, and I thought, no, not complete. The first thing that I would say for a takeaway in this passage is that if you are not a Christian, cry out to God, He alone can save you. Cry out to God for salvation. 
He is gracious and merciful. Be wise. Be wise. Recognize the schemes of the world and that we all once followed the course of this world. And I think I say that because, again, we still carry that burden of our flesh that makes us bent towards wanting to go one way rather than the other. It shatters our arrogance. It should humble us and give us a deep longing for the salvation of the unconverted because we know where they are we once were. Be delighted. If I can, if you remember anything I say today, I encourage you to be delighted. Spend some time in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. Spend some time, camp there for a while. The mercy of God who calls us from death to life and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Think on that for some time this week, I encourage you. The kindness of God toward his people in giving us an eternal inheritance should promote a heartfelt worship. Lastly, be zealous for good works. Be zealous for good works. It says it right there in one of the reference passages I just mentioned. We are saved with a purpose. And far from championing any notion that our good works somehow give us points with God, I don't buy into that. Our good works do not somehow buy us points. That's not, that's not the point of what, of what this is. However, what other reasonable effect can this truth have on the Christian other than walking in obedience? If you go back to Romans 12, which is Paul's transition in Romans 12, he's giving you this idea, the same idea in, in Romans 12. Offer yourselves a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service of worship. I just, Paul would be saying, I just wrote 11 chapters describing to you your plight as sinners and God's grace in saving you. What other reasonable response do we have in reflection upon that grace than to walk in newness of life? I'll conclude with this. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, tells the story of every believer. It's truly every believer's testimony in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. From when we were still following the course of this world and by nature children of wrath, through our blessed salvation by God's grace and the truth that we are saved for a purpose, that being to bear witness to the kingdom of Christ until that kingdom is consummated at his glorious return, and we long for that. It tells of a contrast between death and life, between light and darkness, between goodness and evil. And I would encourage you today to think about where where do we stand with this? Are we living out our purpose? There isn't a lot of gray area. We are either following the prince of the power of the air or we are following the Prince of Peace. May we endeavor to know our glorious Savior more and more, that we might live according to His Word and reflect His goodness in the way that we live our lives. I'm going to close with this illustration. A famous actor was once the guest of honor at a social gathering where he received many requests to recite favorite excerpts from various literary works. An old preacher who happened to be there asked the actor to recite the 23rd Psalm. The actor agreed on the one condition that the preacher would also recite the psalm. 
The actor's recitation was beautifully intoned with great dramatic emphasis for which he received lengthy applause and adulation. The preacher's voice was rough and broken for many years of preaching and his diction was anything but polished. But when he finished, there was not a dry eye in the room. When someone asked the actor, hey, what made the difference? He replied, you see, I know the song, but he knows the shepherd. Church, may we endeavor to not only know, but to follow after our great shepherd who has called us into his marvelous light.